You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Ann Hornaday, chief film critic for the Washington Post. Today, I am pleased to be joined by Killian Murphy, star of the smash hit movie Oppenheimer, in a performance that has earned him a Golden Globe Award and an Oscar nomination. Killian Murphy, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. Killian, before we jump into the film and your performance and the man, J. Robert Oppenheimer, I want to hear about how this project came together for you. Um, this is the sixth time you've worked with Christopher Nolan. Um, he has said that he conceived of this with you in mind. So tell us a little bit about what those initial um, conversations were like. The way that Chris and I work is uh, that it's he basically calls me up when he when he when he has a, a new project, and um, in the interim, I don't really know. Uh, what he's writing or what he's planning. Uh, it's always a wonderful surprise when he does call me. So on this occasion, he called me in, um, I think it was September 21. And he said that he had a new project and it was called Oppenheimer and that he'd like me to play Oppenheimer. So naturally you, you, go, you go through the various different stages of uh, kind of exhilaration and shock and then, uh, Acceptance, I guess, is the final stage. And that's when I just started working. And uh, we had about six months to prep. And then we started shooting in February of 22. Tell us a little bit about how you prepared for the role. And I'm particularly interested in a character like J. Robert Oppenheimer, who's so much in his head, you know? I mean, this is really a movie about a man thinking, you know, and solving problems. Yeah. Mentally, and I just was, I'm wondering if that entails a different kind of preparation, if you need a certain kind of handle um, in order to kind of play that internal journey or or if the technique or the process is any different for you. The script uh, offers the most instruction at the beginning, you know, and um, I think people know at this stage that this, the script was written in the first person, which is very, very unique. I had certainly never encountered it. And I knew that the instruction in, in, it contained in that was that it was going to be a very subjective storytelling through the eyes of Oppenheimer and that we would um, be as close to Oppenheimer as possible as he sort of wrestled with these extraordinary dilemmas and paradoxes um, uh, throughout this period in history. Um, so I, I worked on two strands. I worked, you know, reading all the historical materials that are out there and look, looking at all the archival footage that was there, reading, obviously reading American Prometheus, upon which the, 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 the script was based, uh, working on his physicality, on his voice, um, uh, um, and, then, and then discussing an awful lot with Chris all of the time coming here to Los Angeles to do camera tests and makeup tests and costume tests. Um, and then always in the back of your head, you know that the, the, the film is going to be presented primarily uh, in IMAX, shot on IMAX cameras. So at the back of your mind, you are thinking, this is going to be presented on these 80-foot screens. So I really hopefully just have to think it and it will transmit. 
do you, do, you, do you know what I mean? And we both kind of recognized that it was going to be a relatively interior performance. And we wanted to try and, and access that interior landscape uh, in the performance and in the, in the, in the shooting of the piece. Um, but I've always loved that sort of acting, that acting in where the character is in reflection and repose. Uh, um, despite the film being quite verbose, there was an awful lot of that sort of acting involved. So it was a long, long process, uh, and uh, we worked very, very closely. But Chris is such an extraordinary director of actors, and we have such a really uh, um, clear shorthand at this point in, in our careers that it, it seemed to go, we kind of hit the ground running, you know? Right, right. That's so fascinating that the, that the huge, large-scale format of IMAX actually demands a more intimate performance. I, yeah, I, I didn't really think about it that that directly but i was aware having been a bit of a nolan veteran that that that's how these uh, films get shown and you, you you know when you see uh an imax film in an imax theater it, it, it is so immersive and um I, I knew that that's what chris wanted from the character was to try and take the audience inside uh, of what he was experiencing it is. It is such a, an intensely subjective journey, and I think that the even as as you said, as as verbose and as fascinatingly verbose. I mean, I when I was watching this, I was leaning in to catch every word mm -hmm. that your character and Robert Downey Jr.'s character and Emily, Bl you know, everything everybody said had such high stakes and was so interesting, just substantively. But what we bring with us and what we come away from. Is really you, you know, this portrait, this intensely emotional portrait of of this man grappling um, with his quest and then the legacy of that quest, and that sort of leads me to ask what you, at the end of the day, after doing the research and internalizing Oppenheimer, yeah. what do you think motivated him? Do you think it was his 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 personal intellectual ambition or the war effort, or I don't know, have you come away with any major conclusions about? What drove him? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question. He was so complex and so contradictory in many ways. Um, and I definitely think ambition was certainly part of it at the beginning. Um, you know, to be the father of the atomic bomb, I think that, that, that was meaningful to him. Uh, I do believe that he had a conscience. I do believe he believed very strongly in the war effort. I, do believed he felt that it was just uh, the, the war at the time and this effort. Um, I do think he was vain. I do think he was arrogant. I do think he was flawed. But what I've always landed on at the end is that he was intensely human. Um, you know, he may have been a genius, may have been one of the most brilliant minds uh, to have ever lived, but he was still very much a human being. Uh, and that's what I leaned into the most or try to lean into the most because you have to have that relatability, uh, I think, for audiences to, to go on the journey with you, you know? Absolutely. Because um, it would be so easy just to play him as the icon or as the, you know, the edifice, that title American Prometheus being, you know, a, a case in point. Yes, and I, and I think, sorry to interrupt, but I, I think that that... That, that that thing and the, the title of the, the the book being um American Prometheus, I think we wanted to also lean into the Promethean aspect of 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 his character and also the kind of Faustian aspect of his character, which were 
which is really, really important. That's the sort of tragedy of, of the story, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so many great sort of chamber pieces within this grand vision. And one mm. of those chamber pieces features you and Gary Oldman, Oppenheimer yeah. and Harry Truman, wonder, wonderful scene. Um, again, played on so many different levels and it's, it's, it's a little cat and mousey in terms of, you know, this is when Oppenheimer comes to Truman and, and as he famously said in real life, I feel like I have blood on my hands and Truman did not want to mm. really hear about that. Um, do you, again, it could be interpreted on a couple of different levels when Truman says, that's not your problem. That's my, you know, it's not the man who invented the bomb that they'll remember. It's the man who dropped it, meaning yeah. me, the, you know, um, was that you can kind of, I, I sort of saw it two ways. One is him saying not so fast, buddy. It's, you know, I get the credit and the blame, but also the credit, uh, was it him trying to kind of one up? Oppenheimer or trying to assuage his conscience, do you think? And did you and Gary play it in a particular, did you talk about it one way or the other when you went in to do it? Um, well, first of all, it was one of my favorite days on set, uh, working with Gary, uh, who was one of my all time um, acting heroes. I worked with very briefly on one of the Batman movies, I can't recall which, uh, which one, but I, I definitely worked with him before. Um, and in terms of the, the, the I, I guess, is Oppenheimer looking for some sort of absolution in, in, in that scene? Um, uh, or is he looking for to be, yeah, to be, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think it's nice that it's sort of ambiguous, you know, but I do think it's, it's a, it's certainly a turning point in his story and how he dealt with uh, his legacy, if you like, and how, and how he moved forward in dealing with, um, you know the the development of the hydrogen bomb and his whole attitude towards nuclear pr proliferation. I do think that's a very key scene in his development uh, and in his story. Right, it's a it's a true turning point. You know what's interesting to me too about this particular movie is the conversation that it has sparked. Speaking of legacy. Um, it's still relevant, you know. I mean, the community, the downwind communities in New Mexico have have you know, use this movie or, you know, use this opportunity to remind us of the health effects that, that those communities right. suffered at the time and, and continue to to live with that legacy of. Um, yeah. I'm, and I'm wondering too, so you were born in the 1970s and as these events themselves recede, their relevance might seem to recede. So I was just wondering, was this was this event was this man and also the the bomb he created and the events surrounding it was that relevant to you before this were you aware of it or was this kind of a um galvanizing moment for you personally um i was i, I was aware of who oppenheimer was i was aware that he was you know the the the, the father of the atomic bomb and that you know uh, he kind of ushered in the nuclear age um uh, I'm not sure if growing up for me in Ireland that it was uh, as big of a deal as it was perhaps uh, in America or even in the UK. Um, I think we were dealing with our own conflict just up the road, you know, in, in the north of Ireland. Um, so it was a, it was very educating for me to to 
dive into the research. But I think, you know, um, it's kind of ebbed and flowed the, the, how people deal with this, this uh, sort of sword of Damocles, if you like, which is um, uh, nuclear weapons, which we all live underneath all the time. And, you know, anytime there's, there's, a, there's a conflict, it, it, becomes, it comes to the fore and then it, it, it goes away again. But I think people have so much going on in their own lives that they choose, they choose not to think about it a lot. But it's something that's been part of Chris's thinking for a long time. It's, he's never forgotten about it. Do you know what I mean? And it was then, uh, as we started shooting the movie, uh, you know, the invasion of Ukraine happened just, just a couple of days before we started shooting. So, you know, it just it sort of um, highlighted how, how, how relevant or sadly relevant this story still can be. Absolutely. It's so true. I think we've been kind of, like you said, we've been distracted by the events of the day and kind of lulled into thinking it's been gone away or been solved or something yeah. like that. And not, not so. It, it was interesting to me in the, in the movie um, that he, as in real life, re refers, Oppenheimer refers to the bomb as, a ga as the gadget. Yeah. Which is for probably for secrecy's sake, but also a little emotional distancing there too. Like, you know, was that, what do you think was going on there? Oh, I definitely think it was some, some sort of cognitive dissonance, you know, that they, they had all of those scientists, you know, um, I think that was certainly part of this sort of, um, you know, kind of moral or, you know, semantics or gymnastics that they used to try and be able to work on it because they, they knew ultimately it was a genocidal weapon. You know, that's what they, of course they knew that, but they called it the gadget and they called it a race against the Nazis. And it, it was justified by the fact that the Nazis were, were going to develop theirs qu quicker, but then Germany was defeated. So it became so interesting morally, uh, certainly for a, for, for, from a storytelling point of view, um, that's where you see Oppenheimer wrestling with, with all of this. So it's, it's so rich uh, uh, for storytelling because of the dilemmas that they were grappling with and you know I remember reading about him at one point again I think as, as a sort of a, uh, a defense against uh, his own conscience he, he used to dis, uh, kind of uh, differentiate between guilt and responsibility which I thought was fascinating you know he said that I don't feel guilt but I feel responsibility which is uh, is quite a distinction indeed another wonderful chamber piece and a continuing motif throughout the film is Oppenheimer's relationship with Albert Einstein. Um, yeah. It was a mix of respect, some disdain there, a little competition. Let's take a look at a scene between them and then come back after the clip. Cool. What do you take it to mean? Neutrons smash into nucleus, releasing neutrons to smash into other nuclei. Criticality. Point of no return, massive explosive force. But this time, the chain reaction doesn't stop. It would ignite the atmosphere. When we detonate an atomic device, we might start a chain reaction that destroys the world. Again, another, another relationship that can be understood on multiple levels at once. So when, when Oppenheimer brings this dilemma or this project to Einstein to get, is that genuinely to get his input or to sort of, um, I don't know, is it, a, is it a 
chess move of some kind. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I, I, I enjoy the ambiguity of that. I, I like when the, the movie asks the question but doesn't give the answer. And, and, and um, they had an interesting uh, relationship. Do you, do you know? And Einstein had an interesting position about that, that whole development. But um, I, I, I feel like he, he again, he, he was going there for practical reasons. But I think you're right. I think he needed to go there to kind of defer a little bit to the 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 his former teacher or the former king of this uh, uh, this uh, world you know which was uh, physics but not of quantum mechanics obviously because he kind of didn't uh, he didn't subscribe to quantum mechanics uh, um, right and that's and that gets personal <laughs> yeah that's not just an intellectual uh, <laughs> you're you're you know, you're planting your flag there in a, in a in a really deeply personal way when you get to that level. The the, the mad thing was, um, we actually shot in Einstein's office in Princeton, which is which is incredible. You could, you know, I believe in this stuff. I feel you can. I, I believe you can feel the vibrations from these these locations. Uh, I, I, um, and we shot in many of the real locations, uh, um, in New Mexico, in Los Alamos, and in Princeton. And it it, it does something to us. I, I think as performers. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I, I can only imagine, you know, that, that it just reminds you of the stakes and it, it's literally and figuratively grounding, I would, you know, yeah. I would think when you're in those spaces. For sure. Absolutely. And Chris was very determined to shoot and as much of the real locations as he did. We shot in the real Oppenheimer house in Los Alamos, uh, you know, which again, for myself and Emily Blunt, too. Place Kitty, you know, it, it was it was emotional to to be in these in these rooms and walls that had actually experienced these real life events and had been home to these characters. So, Killian, I can't believe I'm saying this is your first Oscar nomination. Uh, yes. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks so much. What was it? Tell us about receiving that call. Where were you? And what was it like to get that call? Oh, um, I was at home in Cork City uh, with my with my mom and dad and my wife, and we were just sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea, and then uh, and people were texting us and calling us. So um, then my mom, uh, then my mom brought out the sponge cake, <laughs> and we had a bit of cake, so it was nice. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, yeah. I did see you very briefly at the AFI Awards lunch. Which oh, is yes. part of this whole camp, this whole award swirl that you're now in the swirling vortex. Speaking of vortexes, another yeah. uh, another kind of mushroom cloud in and of itself. What's that like? I mean, it it just seems like it's almost a nonstop whirlwind. Yes, it is. It is a bit of a whirlwind, but it's it's. Um, I think I'm. I think I'm getting better at it. You know, and I. And uh, it's such a joy to have the film celebrated in the way that it's being celebrated. Um, it's so lovely that uh, we're getting this response. And it's also a real bonus for me to, to be in rooms with uh, other amazing filmmakers and, and actors and directors and producers that I, that, that I love. And I think it's been a really, really strong year for, for film. So I'm really enjoying that aspect of it. Yeah, I do think, you know, people get caught up in the competition of it, but I think what we don't see from the outside is really how collegial it is and what, how 
it's really a, a, you you develop your own little community. Those of you who are going through this together, both within your projects and amongst your projects, it's really sweet to see. You know, oh, very much, very much so. And you actually get to say, you know, to other actors or directors how much you love their work face to face. You know, and you don't get to do that 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 often. And I've really enjoyed that that part of it. Yeah. I, we have some audience questions and I want to get to it. Um, this is a question from Kelly Highland of Virginia who asks, I understand you're quite a private person and you have very famously um, maintained your private life, Killian, which is one of many admirable qualities about you. Oppenheimer seems to have catapulted you to a different level of celebrity. Are you and your family handling it okay? This is from a concerned Irish American who so enjoyed Peaky Blinders. And I might add another Peaky Blinders fan asked me to ask you, do we need to ask you to show us the uh, red right hand? What? <laughs> um, well, thanks to Kelly for her concern. I'm fine. You know, I'm, I'm having a nice time. It's like I said, it's, it's, it's lovely to celebrate something that you work so hard on and that all of us work so hard on, you know, Chris and all the cast have, have worked so hard on and our crew. So, so I'm really enjoying that that that, that celebratory aspect of it. You know, you're flying around a lot, um, so jet lag is 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 never your friend. But it, but aside from that, no, it's 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 been great. It truly has. That's fantastic. You know, one of the wonderful things about Oppenheimer this past year, as you said, there were so it was such a great year movie wise. I, yeah. I agree with you. So many wonderful films of so many different sort of shapes and sizes and approaches and tones and subject matters. And that's kind of what we want to see. Um, it was really heartening to see people turn out to see Oppenheimer and Barbie, even though Barbie yeah. was based on a toy, really just distinctly original storytelling and ambitious storytelling. Um, but speaking of Peaky, Peaky Blinders, you've also experienced success in the streaming space. So I was just wondering, mm -hmm. does that, do formats matter to you when you're making decisions based on of, of what you're going to do next? Um, I, I think uh, in the past, probably not. Um, but now I am more aware of it. I, I, I think, you know, I, I'm very proud to have been part of a film um, that, that brought people to the cinema in, in such great, great numbers this year. I think it's a win for cinema. I, I don't think there's anything uh, negative about, about that. Um, you know, from, from, um, from a TV point of view, I'm also really proud, you know, that Peaky Blinders lives on a streamer and that people are constantly discovering it and rewatching it and, and it never goes away and people have a different connection to a TV show I think sometimes than they than they do to a film. Although Oppenheimer was unique in that people were going to see it four and five and six times and telling me that. But the thing about a TV show living on a streamer is that it never really goes away. It's it's always there and people have a real um, ownership of the show and of the characters and uh, that's something that's really special and unique. I think. Yeah, indeed. I want to get to one more audience question. We have to get to this one because this is from Michael McCarthy who's writing in from Cork, Ireland, a place with which I think you are quite familiar. Yeah, yeah, my hometown. <laughs> Michael McCarthy asks, what other figure from history would you love to play? Yeah, it's a fair question, Michael, um, of Cork. Uh, I, 
I don't really go about it that way. I, I, my career is so haphazard and random and unplanned uh, that I've never, I've never really set goals for myself other than that, other than trying to challenge myself and to find good, good writing. So I never say, oh, I need to do an Irish film now, or I need to play a historical figure now, or I need to play a, you know, a period film now, or a sci-fi. But it's just serendipity or whatever whatever seems to turn up. Um, so I'm, I'm very open to playing historical figures. Uh, I'm very open to playing contemporary figures. I, I'm just open to it all, as long as it's, it represents a challenge and it's good, good writing and there's, I can collaborate with, with the talented people. Mm. So speaking of these people that you are now in rooms with and you're able to tell them how much you admire, is there a particular filmmaker, writer, director that you, are, that you would love to work with, whom, with whom you have not worked before? Well, again, there's so many, and um, I, I I I stopped making lists of those uh, people because what tends to happen is that I will give you a list of actors or filmmakers, and then I'll immediately like say goodbye and then forget to have mentioned so many others. So I think I really believe in the universe um, choosing what happens next, you know, and and you 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 end up getting the work you're supposed to get. I think if you make good work. It begets good work, and I think that's the biggest calling card you can have is to is to is to make challenging work and good work, and then hopefully the people that you admire, the filmmakers, producers, and actors, that they will respond to that and hopefully call you up. Well, if I may make a request, one of my favorite Killian Murphy movies um, was *The Wind That Shakes the Barley*. That was actually the first time I ever interviewed you. This is the second, but that was the first time I interviewed you was for Ken Loach's wonderful film. Yeah. Um, so I really hope you get to a chance to collaborate with him another time. Oh, I mean, one of, one of my heroes, a, a, a master, master filmmaker. I learned a great deal making that movie. It was a profound uh, experience for me, uh, and I'll never forget it. Uh, um, so, yeah, I listen, I'd do anything for Ken. I'd work with him tomorrow. Mm. Now, what should we watch out for you? What are you in? What, where are we, are we going to see you next? Do you have a project coming up? In fact, I do. I, 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 have a, I have a film called Small Things Like These, which is opening the Berlin Film Festival on the 15th of February. And it's an adaptation of a Claire Keegan novel. And it's adapted by Enda Walsh and uh, directed by Tim Meelens. And I am in the movie and I am really, really happy and proud of it. So. We're very excited about premiering that movie on the 15th. You plus Enda Walsh, I am there. That is a fabulous yeah. combination. I love it. Ah, I wish we could go on. This has been a fascinating conversation, but unfortunately we're out of time. Killian Murphy, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Post Live. Great, it was a pleasure. I'm really glad you could hear me. <laughs> <laughs> it's always, again, always a plus. It's a bonus. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.